Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Trenaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. We at UCLA Extension wish all our listeners a really successful 2024, both financially and professionally. But buckle up, as many of the issues presented last year are pretty much all carrying forward to this year. It's really important to both prepare ourselves for the many changes we've discussed in trends, but it's also going to be really important to try to prepare ourselves for the equally important many black swan events that seem to be controlled by our declared international enemies, a growing list of enemies, I might add. I've looked at several surveys at year end, and there are to my mind, eight threats to the global economy based upon many surveys that have been conducted. These are really not in a specific order, but let me share with you. One is the Mideast War. Another is U.S. inflation. Another is European recession. A fourth one, China slowdown. A fifth one, Japan yield curve spike. Sixth one, the Ukraine war. Seventh one, a potential Taiwan conflict or a war. And finally, and maybe most importantly, don't know, U.S. elections. Keep in mind that all of the threats directly impact pretty much all of the global supply chains as well as inflation. Just as a recent example, on a daily basis, Shippers and transport companies are avoiding the Red Sea and Suez Canal, which triples not only the fuel cost, but triples the crew costs and adds hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars to each voyage. These expenses, whether they be natural gas, oil, freight, raw materials, are going to be factored into the U.S. and European inflation beginning, I would estimate, in about a month. And these could be pretty significant. Fortunately, the oil price, despite all of the uncertainties and threats of war and war itself, has been stable in the $75 to $80 range for the European crude. Fortunately, but that also tells me that the slowdown globally is probably larger than what has been expected. So the demand for crude oil and potentially natural gas also, but the demand for crude oil, importantly based on the China slowdown, is actually making up a part of the supply chain risk for crude oil, which doesn't necessarily make me feel better because the amount of crude oil demanded globally dropping is not a good sign for future economies. Let's add some perspective to why last year our timing was off with our serious concerns about the financial markets. We could actually go back to our initial podcasts several years ago for a few reminders. First, the volume of dollars that flow through our financial markets is far greater than the dollars used for international trade. Let me give you some specifics. Three to five trillion dollars of dollars flow through the global financial markets every single business day. And we can say, okay, that's a lot of money. And it it is. 
particularly given that the global stock markets and bond markets have a global value of about $200 trillion. Three to $5 trillion flowing through our financial markets every business day is significant. And it is far greater than the seemingly small trade deficit for the United States, which ranges from a half to $1 trillion, and that's per year. So we have 3 to $5 trillion flowing through our financial markets every day, and the trade deficit, that standard is really small. It's only a half a trillion to a trillion dollars a year. So trillions of dollars every day relates to currency conversions, buying and selling bonds, buying and selling stocks, and yes, buying and selling real estate. Here's the point. The U.S. bond market and stock markets have benefited from the many years and threats of expanded wars. To make this real, just answer this question for yourselves. Given where we've been the past few years and where we are today, would you rather have European stocks and bonds as your investments and savings during the period we're in with the daily turmoil? Or would you rather have your money in U.S. bonds and stocks? To go a little bit further with Germany in a two-year recession and experiencing national strikes or preparing with other NATO countries war scenarios against Russia, where do you want to protect your long-term investments and savings? In the United States or in Europe? The same goes for Asia. Chinese billionaires are known for buying homes and businesses in Canada, Australia, and even the United States. But how about Taiwanese investors? The United States looks pretty good. The U.S. stock and bond markets, no matter how ridiculously expensive they are today, hitting new highs as the economy faces many issues, still may look good to global investors because their own markets look so bad or so risky. The result is vast amounts of money continues to flow into the U.S. markets as global economies face not only headwinds, but possibly even survival. One indication of the degree to which this is true, United States stock market values or U.S. equities have never been more expensive relative to international equities than they are today. This is the history of the stock markets. The United States has never had this high of a premium price versus other international stock markets. Moving back to the United States, here are some facts that are a bit obscure, but that are really important to think about concerning our economic issues. They revolve around the government reports. And I'm going to talk about employment reports. How many people know that 10 out of the last 11 jobs reports have been revised lower? They report for a month a relatively strong job performance, and then a month later, they revised the month they reported downward. This has happened 10 out of the last 11 months. Secondly, about 25% of job gains in 2023 were ultimately revised away. They were totally taken out of the data months later. Thirdly, don't know if you're aware that government jobs in December, which is the most recent month we have, accounted for 25% of all December job gains. Of course, in January and in February, a lot of these gains are going to be revised downward, as I indicated. But I suspect the government jobs are pretty solid, and I doubt that they're going to be revised much downward. Fourthly, part-time jobs in December were up 762,000 part-time jobs. But I don't know if you noticed, 
Full-time jobs were down 1.5 million in December. This I pointed out in prior podcasts, but a lot of the job gains, frankly, a lot don't exist, but those who do exist are importantly part-time, and the economy has been losing full-time jobs for many months and years. This is not reported. In fact, 2023 was actually a good year for full-time jobs because full-time jobs got all the way up to even with what they were in 2022. So the part-time jobs reports, if you really dig into them, are the ones that created any optimism on U.S. jobs. And finally, I'll mention with respect to jobs and employment, inflation-adjusted earnings last year were 3% below what they were in 2021. So the worker, the wage earner, is losing ground. And I'm going to come back to that in a couple of minutes about how severe of an issue that is. We have a habit of reminding everyone that inflation has not gone away. So we're going to start out this year because, again, we see evidence that, for example, the consumer price index rose three-tenths of a percent in December, which was triple the November increase that was reported. The core inflation, or the CPI, came in at 3.9%, which was twice as high as the Fed's target. And some of the nitty-gritty little detailed expenses have actually climbed significantly. For example, motor vehicle insurance rose 20.3% for the year 2023. Shelter, as measured by rents, since the CPI does not measure inflation related to home ownership, Shelter prices increased 6.2% in 2023. Prepared food outside of the home increased 5.2%. And there are some additional issues in the CPI measure that are important, but a little bit lesser important. And I'll just mention a few of them quickly. The CPI measure of inflation completely ignores rising prices in rural areas across the U.S. The CPI completely ignores price increases related to home ownership acquisition and maintenance costs. The Bureau of Labor Statistics uses what they call Intervention Analysis Seasonal Adjustment, that's IASA, to change actual inflation to a lesser percent than reality so that actual higher inflation is not reported. The CPI calculation considers several real increases in the price items in their samples a distortion. So there's this constant, as well as hedonics, which I've mentioned earlier in our podcast series. Hedonics, where the price levels of increasing item prices are decreased or or mitigated by arbitrary changes in so-called quality. This is a whole major area, which I'm not going to get into again. I did in the earlier podcasts. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics tries to stay on high ground, and they say such things as, well, quote, distortions are removed from the data prior to calculation, and then applied to the unadjusted data. There are several financial and political motivations for understating consumer price index, and of course, one of them is to hold back the cost of living increases in Social Security, which gets closer and closer to bankruptcy. So the last thing the powers that be who control government spending or try to, they want to admit, is that they're going to be running out of Social Security funds even earlier than expected last year and the year before. The Fed does continue to tighten the money supply by shrinking its balance sheet. And in the past month or five weeks or so, 
the Fed has shrunk its balance sheet by another $53 billion, executing its quantitative tightening program. Nearly the entire body of technical analysis and fundamental analysis is warning that a stock market top and a decline of some significance is approaching. The mainstream financial media is obsessed with the hope that the Fed will cut interest rates aggressively this year and fuel unending prosperity. Stocks have essentially run sideways over the past month and even over the past two years since making all-time highs. Short-term, stocks look to be finishing small degrees of waves up for those of you who may be utilizing technical indicators. History tells us that the Fed does not look at reducing interest rates until a stock market plunge and recession is underway. So we're in a period now, and there are arguments that Federal Reserve decreasing of interest rates actually precedes by several months. Some have six months, and these charts have gone all the way back to the 1950s. But the fact that the Fed may be ready to keep interest rates at least at a stable rate, if not have a reduction, is not historically good news for the stock market. If they do cut rates soon, they will be signaling the real data underneath the reported numbers shows unacceptable economic contraction. And I do believe that that is the case, as I've mentioned in the past couple of podcasts. For example, two points. The New York Empire State Manufacturing Index just posted its worst read since COVID and worse than the lows seen during the great financial crisis about 15 years ago. New orders and shipments are way down, but the input prices, in other words, the wholesale inflation is still up. The January Empire Manufacturing Index, to be really specific, plunged to a minus 43.7, and the economists were expecting only a minus 5.0, and that compares to December of a minus 14.5. So 14.5 negative to 43.7 negative is likely a historical drop over a month or so. And again, this index was never this negative, even during the great financial crisis years. The second item I'm going to mention before we close is a follow-up on the commercial real estate. This appears to be, again, keeping in mind the Federal Reserve is owned by the money center banks, and the Federal Reserve as its main priority is to protect the money center banks. I suspect that the commercial real estate market is getting to be so disastrous that the Federal Reserve is willing to take the chance of stabilizing or dropping the discount rate as at least an initial attempt to mitigate the negative momentum in commercial real estate. And what do I mean by negative momentum? 44% of office building loans carry outstanding loan balances higher than the property value. Let me repeat that. Almost half of all office building loans have loan balances that are higher than the total property values. And we are seeing every week that goes by, we see more and more examples of major, actually well-known properties in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles selling for half or even less than half of how much the, the mortgage loan is, which is creating really large losses with the banks who loan the money. This is becoming so predominant that 
the banks are doing, I think, everything they can to not realize those losses. They're extending loans that have really no basis for extension because they don't want to foreclose. But even so, market values continually drop. Occupancy continues to drop. And the issues continue to be major in a manner that can impact the entire U.S. economy, which I think is what is happening. So my final observation on real estate is uh, $1.5 trillion are due in real estate loans this year and next year. That's commercial real estate. Consider that 95 million square feet are now unoccupied in New York City. Consider that that's the equivalent of 30 Empire State Buildings that are unoccupied in New York City. Consider in the last three years, our largest 10 U.S. cities have lost 2 million residences. The Columbia Business School in a study actually called this an urban doom loop. Let's move on from commercial real estate and come back to what I mentioned I would come back to on income distribution. The top 1%, which is only 132,000 households, have a combined net worth of $20 trillion. The bottom 50% or 66 million, that's households. Each household has an average of two and a half to three members. So the bottom 50% of the United States essentially has a combined net worth of $3.6 trillion. I'm going to repeat that one more time before we close because year by year, this has gotten worse and worse and worse. It's still getting worse. The concentration of wealth in the United States is becoming, it's already higher than it's ever been in the history of the country, as far as I know from data that's available. So let me repeat it. The bottom half of United States households have a combined net worth of under $4 trillion. The top one-tenth of 1%, 1 which is only 132,000 households, have a combined net worth of $20 trillion, more than five times greater than half of the balance of the country. This can't be leading us to a good place. And although this is an intangible, I think it's an important intangible, it relates to social discord, it relates to a lot of issues, including work ethic, including work hours, including average compensation. There are some who are beginning to assume that as we move more and more into artificial intelligence and it takes more and more hours away from a number of manufacturing jobs, medical practice jobs, and so forth, that we could be moving down a track where we have higher and higher unemployment, and more serious issues in real earnings per worker. So I'll leave that to a future time. And if I haven't conveyed it sufficiently, I wish everyone a really successful 2024, given so many issues that we have to overcome with many of these issues, perhaps beyond the control of the United States itself. Until next time. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs.
UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.